Part three of the County Regiment. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Epistomolus. The County Regiment by Dudley L. Vale. Part three. At about the appointed time, five in the afternoon, the regiment was moved in three battalions of four companies, each out of the breastworks where it had lain through the afternoon, leaving knapsacks behind, stationed for a few moments among the scanty pine woods in front, and then, at the word of command, started forth upon its fateful journey, the colonel in the lead. The first battalion, with the colors in the center, moved at a double quick across the open field, under a constantly thickening fire, over the enemy's first line of rifle pits, which was abandoned at its approach, and onward to the main line of breastworks with a force and impetus which would have carried it over this like Niagara, but for an impassable obstruction. Says the regimental history, There had been a thick growth of pine sprouts and saplings on this ground, but the rebels had cut them, probably that very day, and had arranged them so as to form a very effective abatis, thereby clearing the spot and thus enabling them to see our movements. Up to this point there had been no firing sufficient to confuse or check the battalion, but here the rebel musketry opened, a sheet of flame, sudden as lightning, red as blood, and so near that it seemed to singe the men's faces, burst along the rebel breastwork and the ground and trees close behind our line was ploughed and riddled with a thousand balls that just missed the heads of the men. The battalion dropped flat on the ground, and the second volley, like the first, nearly all went over. Several men were struck, but not a large number. It is more than probable that if there had been no other than this front fire, the rebel breastworks would have been ours, notwithstanding the pine boughs. But at that moment a long line of rebels on our left, having nothing in their own front to engage their attention, and having unobstructed range on the battalion, opened a fire which no human valor could withstand, and which no pen can adequately describe. It was the work of almost a single minute. The air was filled with sulphurous smoke, and the shrieks and howls of more than two hundred and fifty mangled men rose above the yells of triumphant rebels and the roar of their musketry. "'About face!' shouted Colonel Kellogg, but it was his last command. He had already been struck in the arm, and the words had scarcely passed his lips when another shot pierced his head, and he fell dead upon the interlacing pine boughs. Wild and blind with wounds, bruises, noise, smoke, and conflicting orders, the men staggered in every direction, some of them falling upon the very top of the rebel parapet, where they were completely riddled with bullets, others wandering off into the woods on the right and front to find their way to death by starvation at Andersonville, or never to be heard of again. The second battalion had advanced at an interval of about seventy-five yards after the first, and the third had followed in turn, but they were ordered by General Upton to lie down as they approached the entrenchments. They could not fire without injury to the line in front, and could only hold their dangerous and trying position in readiness to support their comrades ahead, protecting themselves as they could from the fire that seemed like leaden hail. There was no suggestion of retreat at any point, and several hundred of the enemy, taking advantage of a lull in the firing, streamed over the breastworks and gave themselves up, but through a misunderstanding of the case the credit of their capture was given to other regiments, though clearly 
due to this. The history continues. The lines now became very much mixed. Those of the first battalion who were not killed or wounded gradually crawled or worked back. Wounded men were carried through to the rear, and the woods began to grow dark, either with night, or smoke, or both. The companies were formed and brought up to the breastworks one by one, and the line extended toward the left. The enemy soon vacated the breastwork in our immediate front, and crept off through the darkness. Throughout the terrible night they held their ground, keeping up a constant fire to prevent an attempt by the enemy to reoccupy the line, until they were relieved in the early morning by other troops. They had secured a position which it was indispensable to hold, and the line thus gained remained the regiment's front during its stay at Cold Harbor. Until June 12th the position was kept confronting the enemy, whose line was parallel and close before it, while daily additions were made to the list of casualties as they labored in strengthening the protective works. The official report of General Upton reads in part as follows. The Second Connecticut, anxious to prove its courage, moved to the assault in beautiful order. Crossing an open field, it entered a pine wood, passed down a gentle declivity, and up a slight ascent. Here the charge was checked. For seventy feet in front of the works the trees had been felled, interlocking with each other and barring all further advance. Two paths several yards apart, and wide enough for four men to march abreast, led through the obstruction. Up these to the foot of the works the brave men rushed, but were swept away by converging fire. Unable to carry the entrenchments, I directed the men to lie down and not return the fire. Opposite the right the works were carried. The regiment was marched to the point gained and, moving to the left, captured the point first attacked. In this position, without support on either flank, the second Connecticut fought till 3 a.m., when the enemy fell back to a second line of works. The regimental history continues. On the morning of the second, the wounded who still remained were got off to the rear, and taken to the division hospital some two miles back. Many of them had lain all night with shattered bones, or weak with loss of blood, calling vainly for help, or water, or death. Some of them lay in positions so exposed to the enemy's fire that they could not be reached until the breastworks had been built up and strengthened at certain points, nor even then without much ingenuity and much danger. But at length they were all removed. Where it could be done with safety, the dead were buried during the day. Most of the bodies, however, could not be reached until night, and were then gathered and buried under cover of the darkness. The regiment's part in the charge of June 3rd, the disastrous movement of the whole Union line against the Confederate works, which Grant admitted never should have been made, was attended with casualties which by comparison with the slaughter of the first seemed inconsiderable. There were, in fact, losses in killed and wounded on almost all of the twelve days of its stay at Cold Harbor, but the fatal first of June greatly overshadowed the remaining time, and that first action was indeed incomparably the most severe the second Connecticut ever saw. Its loss in killed and wounded, in fact, is said to have been greater than that of any other Connecticut regiment in any single battle. The reputation of a fighting regiment, which its fallen leader had predicted, was amply earned by that unfaltering advance against entrenchments manned by Lee's veterans, and that tenacious defense of the position gained, 
but the cost was appallingly great. The record of Cold Harbor, of which all but a very small proportion was incurred on June 1st, is given as follows. Killed or died of wounds, 121. Wounded but not mortally, 190. Missing, 15. Prisoners, 3. General Martin T. McMahon, writing of this battle in The Century's Series of War Papers, says, I remember at one point a mute and pathetic evidence of sterling valor. The Second Connecticut Heavy Artillery, a new regiment eighteen hundred strong, had joined us but a few days before the battle. Its uniform was bright and fresh, therefore its dead were easily distinguished where they lay. They marked in a dotted line an obtuse angle, covering a wide front, with its apex toward the enemy, and thereupon his face, still in death, with his head to the works, lay the colonel, the brave and genial Colonel Elijah S. Kellogg. Such was their first trial in battle. Immediately after receiving news of the action of June 1st, Governor Buckingham had sent a commission as colonel to Lieutenant Colonel James Hubbard. He, however, was unwilling to assume the responsibility of the command. This had been his first battle, and he drew the hasty inference that all the fighting was likely to consist of a similar walking into the jaws of hell. He afterwards found that this was a mistake. Upon General Upton's advice, therefore, the officers recommended to the governor the appointment of Ronald S. McKenzie, then a captain of engineers on duty at headquarters, and this recommendation being favorably endorsed by superior officers up to the lieutenant-general was accepted, and Colonel McKenzie took command on June 6th. Of the man who was now to lead the regiment, Grant in his memoirs writes twenty years later the following unqualified judgment. I regarded McKenzie as the most promising young officer in the army. Graduating at West Point as he did during the second year of the war, he had won his way up to the command of a corps before its close. This he did upon his own merit and without influence. Such a statement from such a quarter is enough to show that once more the second Connecticut was to be commanded by a soldier of more than ordinary qualities, a fact which was not long in developing. Colonel Mackenzie's active connection with the regiment lasted only some four months, but they were months of great activity, and afforded such occasions for proof of his abilities that his speedy promotion was inevitable. He never achieved the general popularity with his men that had come to his predecessor, nor cared to, but he did gain quite as thoroughly their respect through his mastership of the business in hand. It was not long after he assumed command that, as the regimental history says, the men began to grieve anew over the loss of Kellogg. The commander had chastised us with whips, but this one dealt in scorpions. By the time we reached the Shenandoah Valley, he had so far developed as to be a far greater terror to both officers and men than Early's grape and canister. He was a perpetual punisher, and the Second Connecticut, while under him, was always a punished regiment. There is a regimental tradition to the effect that a well-defined purpose existed among the men, prior to the Battle of Winchester to dispose of this commanding scourge during the first fight that occurred. If he had known it, it would only have excited his contempt, 
for he cared not a copper for the good will of any except his military superiors, and he certainly feared no man of woman born on either side of the lines. But the purpose, if any existed, quailed and failed before his audacious pluck on that bloody day. He seemed to court destruction all day long, with his hat aloft on the point of his saber, he galloped over forty-acre fields, through a perfect hailstorm of rebel lead and iron, with as much impunity as though he had been a ghost. The men hated him with the hate of hell, but they could not draw bead on so brave a man as that. Henceforth, they firmly believed he bore a charmed life. Colonel Mackenzie's advancement was brilliantly rapid, as Grant states, and at the time of Lee's surrender he was in command of a corps of cavalry, which had shortly before taken an important part in the Battle of Five Forks under his leadership. When the war ended he became colonel of the 24th Infantry in the regular army, and later received a cavalry command, gaining much distinction by his services in the Indian campaigns in the West and on the Mexican border. He was made Brigadier General in 1882, shortly after placed on the retired list, and died at Governor's Island in 1889. The unsuccessful assault on Lee's works at Cold Harbor marks the end of the first part of Grant's campaign. The next move was to swing the army southward to the line of the James River, and prepare to move upon Richmond and its defenses from that side. This change of base was one of General Grant's finest achievements, admirably planned, and so skillfully executed that for three days Lee remained in total ignorance of what his adversary was doing. The second Connecticut withdrew from its position on June 12th, late at night, reached the river on the 16th, and, moving up it in transports, was disembarked and sent toward Petersburg to a point on the left wing of the army. It reached position on the night of the 19th and entrenched. The usual occurrences of such marches as attended this change of scene were varied for the men, as the regimental history suggestively relates, by a notable circumstance, a bath in the river. It was the only luxury we had had for weeks. It was a goodly sight to see half a dozen regiments disporting themselves in the tepid waters of the James but no reader can possibly understand what enjoyment is afforded unless he has slept on the ground for fourteen days without undressing, and been compelled to walk, cook, and live on all fours, lest a perpendicular assertion of his manhood should instantly convert it into clay. The operations against Petersburg had been going on for some time when the regiment arrived, and for two days it lay in the rifle pits it had dug under continual fire, with frequent resulting casualties. It was the most intolerable position the regiment was ever required to hold. We had seen a deadlier spot at Cold Harbor, and others awaited us in the future, but they were agonies that did not last. Here, however, we had to stay hour after hour, from before dawn until after dark, and that, too, where we could not move a rod without extreme danger. The enemy's line was parallel with ours, just across the wheat-field. Then they had numerous sharpshooters, who were familiar with every acre of the ground, perched in tall trees on both our flanks. Then they had artillery posted everywhere. No man could cast his eyes over the parapet, or expose himself ten feet in the rear of the trench without drawing fire. And yet they did thus expose themselves. 
for where there are even chances of being missed or hit, soldiers will take the chances rather than lie still and suffer from thirst, supineness, and want of all things. There was no getting to the rear until zigzag passages were dug, and then the wounded were borne off. Our occupation continued during the night and the next day, the regiment being divided into two reliefs, the one off duty lying a little to the rear, in a cornfield near Harrison's house. But it was a question whether on duty or off duty was the more dangerous. On the 21st, relieved from this post, the regiment was moved to a new position further southwest, and about the same distance from the city of Petersburg, which lay in plain view, and whose city clocks could be heard distinctly. The Sixth Corps was engaged in an operation having the purpose of breaking Lee's communications with the South by the line of the Weldon Railroad, and in the course of this the Second Connecticut took part in a sharp skirmish with Hill's division on June 22nd, an affair which to other experiences would be notable as a battle of some proportions. The desired result was not gained. The attempt on Petersburg which if successful might have hastened the end of the Confederacy by six months, and which came so near success, was changed to besieging operations, and for some time Grant's army lay comparatively quiet. In its four days in action here, the regiment suffered as follows. Killed or died of wounds? Fifteen. Wounded, but not mortally? Fifteen. Missing? Three. Prisoners who died? Five. End of Part 3 Recording by Epistomalus, Cupertino, California EPCOMM.com slash school